verse 21, and we'll read our verses once through together, and then we can look at each of them more carefully and see what the Lord has for us today. So John chapter 13, beginning in verse 21, this is the reading of God's living and infallible word. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side in his bosom. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him by what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he, Judas, immediately went out, and it was night. The uh, washing of the disciples' feet provided a vivid example of what it would mean in practice to be a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. This would be the fruit of uh, inward spiritual cleansing that Jesus talked about that should occur, a cleansing which was nothing less than redemptive from darkness to light received through faith in Christ. And in explaining this truth, Jesus had said somewhat cryptically to Peter back in verse 10, and you are clean, but not all of you. Not all of you are clean. And for us, the reader, John identifies the betrayer in verse 2 as none other than Judas Iscariot, but says nothing more about it besides the fact that Jesus knew in verse 11 who was to betray him that was why he said, not all of you are clean. And before Jesus goes any further, with all of his divine blessings and promises that fill chapter 14 and 15 and 16 and sealed with the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, all of these promises that he loved his own and he loved them until the end, that fill these wonderful chapters before he goes any further in demonstrating what it means to be a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, he must first expel one of them who is not. As Jesus unmasks the betrayer. So I broke our text down into four headings to help us go through each section this morning. And the first heading that I want to set before you is Jesus confirms that one of them is the betrayer. One of them is the betrayer. And this scene begins with a startling and sobering indictment that the one who will betray the Lord Jesus is at this very moment in the upper room where, where it is only those who are closest to him. And note the effect that this had on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21 states, and after saying these things, and, and, and these things are referring back to 
verse 18, where Jesus had made that veiled illusion that one of them will, will lift up their, their heel against him. But it, it's generic, and he doesn't specify any more than that. The disciples seemingly don't react. He, he's quoting Psalm 41, verse 9, a psalm of David, who in his own time uh, was also being betrayed by those closest. So after Jesus sort of pulled back the veil, he, he introduces at least this subject of betrayal. It says Jesus became troubled in his spirit. And we've seen this description now of our Lord three times in the last three chapters. The Lord being greatly troubled. It is terasso in the Greek. It's a, it's a strong verb that we're troubled. And it's used figuratively to describe the water being stirred up. It means to agitate back and forth, to, to, to shake to and fro. It's used to, to describe an inner perplexity. It's an, an emotional agitation. It means he was deeply disturbed in spirit. The Lord was not a stoic Lord. He is emotionally invested in the 12 and the mission to glorify the Father. He wasn't just going through the motions here. No. His, his heart was, was agitated. And his heart was perturbed as by what he, he is about to say. Because what he is about to say, he is about to say about Judas. One of the 12, and no doubt Jesus had poured his life into Judas. Jesus has loved Judas. And he has brought him into the inner circle, or he would not be there. He would not be one of the 12 first whom he had chosen. And he would not be there at this moment right now. He has given him a very privileged position. He has trusted, entrusted much to Judas. So he became troubled in spirit and testified, which is a courtroom term, and said, truly, truly, I say to you. And, and this is how Jesus would signal a statement or, or a sentence of extreme importance. It means amen and amen. Jesus is, is amening his own sermon, if you will. He, he's affirming the validity of what he's about to say. That one of you will betray me. This must have dropped like a bomb. This was like a punch to the gut. All of a sudden, Jesus issues this startling statement that there's one of them inside this, this inner circle who is not one of us. There's one of them who's wearing the game jersey, but he's not on the team. One of you will betray me. One of you is a betrayer. This word betray means to hand over that one of you is going to hand me over to Israel's apostate authorities. And, and Jesus has known this all along, who it is who, who will betray him. None of this has taken the Lord Jesus by surprise, no. None of this has caught him off guard. No, this is a part of the plan. This is all a part of the sovereign plan of God from before the foundations of the world. It was Jesus who said to his disciples, you'll remember at the end of John chapter 6, verse 70, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Why would Jesus choose a devil? 
to be one of the 12? We'll answer that as we go along. Jesus also said in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, that the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. That word delivered is the very same word translated betrayed. So Jesus has already told them that one of them is a devil. And he's already told them he is to be betrayed. But they weren't listening. They only heard what they, they wanted to hear. And at this point, what I want us to understand is that though man doesn't know who the false disciple is, Jesus always knows. He knows at all times and in all situations. He knows even in this room who are true disciples and who are not. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There are no secrets when it comes to the Lord. He knows all. He sees all. And what's amazing is none of his disciples knew it was Judas. No, notice this in, in verse 22. The disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke. Who's he talking about? In this embarrassed silence that follows the disciples that grasp his meaning, but they, they are at a loss to know which one of them he meant. Is it one of the 12, one of your other disciples? Could it be? Is there someone downstairs or outside? Surely it couldn't be one of us, is it? Judas was such a world-class chameleon, a world-class hypocrite. He had learned to play the game of religion Better than anyone else. He knew the vocabulary. He knew how to fit into the fellowship. He knew how to dress the part. He knew the ministry. He was a con man. He was an apostate apostle and a master deceiver. Things were not working out the way that Judas had hoped things were going to be working out. Judas had very likely envisioned a, a Messiah, much like the crowd who celebrated and welcomed Jesus into the city. Someone who might take over Israel politically. Uh, someone who would subdue the Roman Empire and restore the nation back to her former glory under God. Judas was looking to ride the coattails of Jesus into, uh, no doubt, a higher office. He was looking for a political messiah, a, a power broker, a David-type king. He surely wasn't looking for a savior. What would he do with that? In fact, you get the sense in Scripture that Judas was one of the most respected, maybe even of the twelve. That's how crude he was. He was a master of the system he was a seasoned manipulator. And what's amazing is, is they didn't all rise up and say, we've known it all along. And see, I, I told you it was Judas. I, I told you. No, instead immediately of accusing Jesus, we see actually in Matthew 26, verse 22, the apostles, they each one began to say to Jesus, Surely not I, Lord. They all began to take personal inventory and they audited themselves. They were so grieved by just the thought of it that each one began to say, Surely it is not I, Lord. And as each of them around the table took personal inventory of their intentions and it came to Judas 
What did Judas say? When it got to Judas, the actual betrayer, what did Judas say? Did he uh, break down and confess? It is I, Lord, I am the one who is about to betray you. Is that what he says? No. Verse 25, And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. He just jumped on the bandwagon. <laughs> he, he just echoed what was going around the room. And after everyone else went around the room and said, Surely not I, Lord, he repeated the line. He has rehearsed this line. He has practiced this line. So he just repeated it so he could stay undetected. And even Judas said, surely not I, Lord. He is brazen. His conscience is seared with a hot iron. And the amazing thing is, is that the 11 did not know. They were sitting with the betrayer that the betrayer has been with them all along and that they were unable to detect the tear who had been sown in amongst the wheat i mean think about it these 12 they have spent together day and night with a better part of three plus year over 1200 Days and nights, they have traveled together. They have prayed together. They have done ministry together. They have sung hymns together. They have heard the same sermons together, witnessed the same incredible miracles together. They have been a band of brothers this entire time, and none of them has suspected Judas is not one of them in his hearts of hearts, they have no clue that he is an unbeliever who's unrepentant and he is not clean. One of you is not clean. And this should be alarming to us, beloved, for there can be in our own families, church and personal, a child who goes undetected. A brother who is undetected. A spouse who is undetected. Who knows the words. Who knows the vocabulary. Who, who attends church. Who sings the songs. But they are like a dead fish. Just floating downstream. Just going with the flow. But have never been born again and put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. This is terrifying. Something for us to consider as we go through the rest of this text. That was point number one. And, and Jesus confirms what he said earlier to Peter during the foot washing that you are clean, Peter, but not all of you. And not only is not one of them not clean, but that one of them, Jesus says, will betray me. That takes us to point number two. And in verses 23 through 26, the betrayer is identified because no disciple could put forth an answer as to who it could be. This is, I scratched my head for a while over this. So verse 23, let's just continue through these these texts it says in verse 23 now there was leaning on jesus's bosom one of his disciples whom jesus loved this is john the author of the gospel and the author of four additional books in the new testament and john is so overwhelmed this is in such contrast to judas right john is so overwhelmed and so humbled to be one of jesus's disciples that he will not even put his own name in his gospel. He just identifies himself as one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. We're okay with that name for ourselves as well, right? 
I want to be simply known as one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. You can call me that. That, that. That's all John wanted to be known for, a disciple whom Jesus loved. And what a contrast to Judas, who is after the world, who is after the prestige and honor of taking over the nation. And everything was said and done. And after the same spirit that, that rose Christ from the dead, now indwelt in John the author. He could look back. Everything's been done for 40, 50, maybe 60 years, and he's just kind of looking back as the Holy Spirit fills him up, and he's recording in his gospel the last of the four gospels, and he is filled with the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead, and, and John now reflecting writes, all I want to be known as is one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And, and here in verse 23, we see he's reclining against Jesus' bosom. This is a tender scene here. Um, we are but hours from the cross. They are gathered in the upper room in, the, in this uh, U-shaped um, table. And they are on the inside of the cable. Guests would gather all on, on one side while the uh, exterior of the table re remained open for servers to, to bring in the food. And as we talked about last week, the feet would have been away. It would have been courteous to take their stinky feet and put them away from the food and from the other faces. And, and they would be leaning on their elbows or, or maybe a cushion to support their, their head with one hand and, and then they would reach in with the other to, to grab the food. And John here we think is probably on the right of Jesus. And, and, and instead of John leaning his head on his hand on his right hand and, and reaching for the food on his left, He's now leaning his head back against the bosom, against the bosom, the, the chest of Jesus. Among other things, does this not show us how accessible Jesus was and is? How approachable the Lord Jesus was. Jesus wasn't sitting at the head of, you know, a hundred foot long table, uh, being the king, um, with the crown and and he's only sitting at the head where ju where just the king could sit. Jesus wasn't sitting at his own table with a with a little reserved sign uh, on the table so he could sit by himself uh, away from the the peasants and the the filth of the people. No, he's in the middle of this, and John is all but laying on top of him. <laughs> And it shows what an open-hearted, open Savior that the Lord Jesus Christ is. What a beautiful picture. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who, who labor and are, and are heavy with laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, not, not the world's yoke that would weigh you down my, my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light he said back in John 6 verse 37 all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So here, John is all but laying in Jesus' chest in, the, in this close, intimate time of fellowship as the hours and minutes and seconds tick away. In verse 24, Simon Peter therefore motioned to him, him being John. So, so, Picture this, Peter is gesturing 
to John, motions to John, and he asks who it was of whom he spoke. In other words, Peter is asking John, who's he saying? Who is it? Who is it? And John's ear is, is basically an inch or two away from the Lord's mouth. And, and no doubt Peter is asking, because from what we know of Peter, Peter is ready to take the betrayer on. <laughs> right? That, that's what he does. He's the bouncer of the group. Tell me who it is. And, and remember what happens later, of course, in, in John chapter 18, when Judas shows up and brings the cohorts of the Roman soldiers and they got their clubs and the lanterns and the swords and the officers of the chief priests, and, the, and they all come, and when they go to arrest Jesus, it is Peter who takes out his sword and, and widely swings so much that he cuts off the, the ear of Malchus. Jesus has to go take it off the ground and put it back on his head. Peter is taking on anyone. We don't need a board meeting for this. I've got it. He's ready to storm the gates of hell for the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 24, Peter motions to John. Who is it of whom he spoke? And in verse 25, so that disciple speaking of John, leaning back against Jesus' bosom, said to him, and, and, and I think here John probably whispers, Lord, who is it? And it's clear that John asked because John has no idea either. None of these guys know. And it was always Peter, James, and John, wasn't it? Uh, of the inner circle of the 12. There was the 12 uh, that were the inner circle. And then there, there was another inner circle of Peter, James, and John. And it was always Peter who was in the list first. Judas is always last in the list of all the disciples. Peter's first. So you got Peter maybe next to John. John is in the chest of the Lord Jesus Christ. Neither one of them know, Lord, who is it? And again, this tells us what a master deceiver Judas was as he plays the role of hypocrite. And how easy it is in our day for people to, to grow up in church, who attend church, who uh, join memberships and become members of church, who sing the songs in church, who even get baptized in church, but not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. He commands us to test ourselves. Because how easy it is to just go along with the flow. Uh, to be self-deceived. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many, Matthew 7 says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not cast out demons in your name? And did we not perform many miracles in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Beloved, this is a warning to those who deceive themselves, who are the tares among the wheat. This is not for those who love Christ, who abide in Christ. No, it is not those who, who love the Lord your God <coughs> with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, with all of your strength. It, no, it's not for those people. First John says if we abide in him, we may have confidence we should have confidence, beloved, and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. No, but for those who are just going through the motions, 
who haven't experienced new transforming life in Jesus Christ, Judas stands as a warning. And every one of us here should ask the Lord that question. Surely not I, Lord, as we examine themselves. You'd rather get that sorted out on this side of the grave and not wait for that side of the grave because it'll be too late on that end. Well, that brings us to verse 26. And here we see that the betrayer is finally identified as Jesus responds. But again, he does so in sort of a cryptic way. You'll see as we keep going through this text why I think it, it plays out sort of how it does. Verse 26, Jesus answered, and this is Jesus' response to John's question, who's lying in his bosom when he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, and Jesus, I believe, also whispers this right into the beloved's ear that, that is just inches from his mouth. It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now, a morsel was a, a piece of um, unleavened bread. And... They would dip the morsel into a, a common bowl, the same we take chips and, and with the scoops and go in with the dip. And there was a mixture of, of herbs and vinegar and salt and water. And they <coughs> crush some dates and figs and some raisins into it and, and sort of mash it all together. That was their dip. And it was a gesture of friendship and hospitality. Uh, for the host to actually dip the morsel into the dip and to pass it around. And so what Jesus is doing here is not like an unusual thing. And by identifying the betrayer this way, he's being very discreet. No one's going to be alarmed by this. Verse 26, so Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And, and this will be the sign. This will be the indicator. Okay? So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, Judas, I think, is probably sitting on his left, the left of Jesus. John is on the right in his bosom. Peter is probably next to John. Judas appears to be on his left. And again, some indication of just how highly respected Judas was that he's sitting in the upper room next to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why does Jesus do this so discreetly? Or why might we think that this is done discreetly? Well, this is what I would suggest. First, the text, we will get that to that. But I also think that Jesus under, understood very clearly that he has come into this world to die. Okay? To be crucified. To lay down his life as a ransom for many. He, he was the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. He came on a mission of salvation. And nothing must deter his march to the cross. It's the very purpose of why the Lord Jesus Christ came. And even this betrayer was a part of the sovereign plan of God. And if Jesus let the betrayer's identity be known to all the rest of the disciples, then it would have surely aborted the plan. They would have stepped forward and manhandled Judas. They probably would have tied Judas up. There's no way they were going to let him betray the Lord Jesus Christ. And the betrayal was the next link in the chain that would lead to the cross. This must happen. And so this must remain somewhat veiled for now. And so Jesus very discreetly whispers, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread to when I have dipped it. This brings us to point number three. And in verses 27 through 30, we see the betrayer is dismissed. The betrayer is dismissed. But 
before the betrayer is dismissed. Notice what happens in verse 27. This is one of the most shocking texts in all of Scripture. It says, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. In, into Judas. This, this is more than demon possession. This is devil possession. The, 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 the devil is not uh, uh, omnipresent. No, he cannot be present uh, everywhere all at the same time. He can only be in one place at one time. He has hordes of demons all across the world, but there is only one devil. He is in one place in one time. And there is one other time that this is mentioned, and it is with the Antichrist, who comes working in the power of Satan himself. This, this is an extraordinary moment. As the devil himself enters Judas, earlier in this chapter, in verse 2, it says, the devil having already put into the heart of Jesus, Judas to betray him, so Satan has already put it into the heart and into the mind of Jesus that, that he is to betray Jesus. But now this goes a whole nother step further. And the devil now places himself inside of Judas. Not just working in the power of or in the spirit of. The devil himself is in Judas. Judas has deteriorated to the point of no return. He has given self over to the forces of darkness. Satan now controls Judas. He will be his mouthpiece. And he will be the hands and feet to take on and do the devil's work. Three things we learn about the devil here. Number one, the devil is very real. He's not that cute little short guy with the with the little tail and, and the horns and the, and the pitchfork or the guy sitting on the shoulder fighting with God, right? He is a, a disembodied spirit, small s, which means he doesn't have a physical body. He, he's a spiritual being. He's a fallen angel. The cherubim, we, we believe, one of the highest orders. He has a mind. He is highly intelligent, he has hatred. He has love for sin and for evil. And he has a will, a, a diabolical will that is cast against God and is cast against Christ and cast against the kingdom of God and the bride of Christ. The devil is real, number one. Secondly, the devil is powerful. He has taken control of Judas's mind. 1 Peter 5, 8 warns, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking someone he may devour. Resist him. And Peter would know. Peter would know because Peter was completely unaware of the, the influence that Satan had on him as he spoke right through Peter. Earlier, you remember back in, in Matthew uh, 16, Jesus was telling his disciples he must go to Jerusalem. He must be delivered over to the hands of the elders and to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law. He must be killed and he will be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke the Lord, <laughs> saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus told Peter, get behind me, Satan, for, for you are a hindrance to me. And so the devil is cunning, so shrewd, he even found his way into speak through the voice of Peter. Satan is a powerful force. And if you are not sealed by the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, he can possess you. Satan entered Judas. Frightening. Third, the devil is wicked. 1 John 5.19, he's called the evil one. John 8.4, we went through this many a times. He is a liar and the father of lies. 
John 8, 44 also tells us that he is a murderer and was so from the beginning. He is the tempter, 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. He is called Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies. These are the flies that gather on dung, that lay their maggots. That's who the devil is. He is the accuser because he accuses the brethren day and night. That's the voice that you hear telling you, you're not saved. Uh, uh, what kind of Christian are you anyways? Or when you think, God can't use me, look at my life. That's the, the accuser, the, the, the devil sending those, those fiery darts. And why we need the full armor of God and, and the shield of faith to quench them. His very name, Satan itself, means adversary or one who opposes. Another of his titles is, is devil, which means slanderer. Satan will do anything and everything in his power to oppose God and to oppose those who follow him. And here in verse 27, Satan believes he has the Lord Jesus Christ right where he wants him. So the devil enters into Judas, and this will lead to a series of events that in less than 24 hours will result in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 27, Jesus says to Judas, and what Jesus says, everyone at the table will now hear this. What you are going to do, do quickly. Notice that Jesus doesn't perform an exorcism. No. He commands Judas and he commands the devil to, to carry out his despicable deed. What you do, do quickly. Why? Because Jesus controlled every detail of his own death. And Jesus is on a divine time schedule and he must be crucified. Tomorrow is the Passover. He is the, the sacrificial lamb who will take away the sins of the world. He must be the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies. And as Satan now enters Judas, the clock begins to tick down and it begins counting the hours down to the minutes, down to the very seconds to the greatest evil ever perpetrated. And yet it is through that evil that the greatest good will ever be accomplished. What Judas and the devil meant for evil, God meant for good. Verse 28. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Okay? So <laughs> here we go. The disciples all heard what Jesus just said to Judas. What you're going to go do, go, go do quickly. They just all heard that. But this, this is what's telling me that they didn't hear everything else that Jesus had said. This is what ma makes me think Jesus is probably whispering to John. But regardless, the rest of these guys, all they have now is the answer. They have no idea of the question. So verse 29 says, some thought that because Judas had the money bag, and this is because Judas was the treasurer we saw back in chapter 12, verse 6, he was so trusted he was the treasurer. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. So they just jumped to this conclusion. They have no idea what the conversation is or it would be clear that Jesus has just spotted his betrayer. But, and then also it says, oh, this is what it means. Go quickly and maybe go get some food for the Passover. That's maybe what they're thinking. That's how it's clicked in some of their minds. And then others thought that he should give something to the poor. So others thought, Judas, yeah, go quickly and go help the needs of the poor. And all of this is so incredibly woven together by the absolute brilliance and the foreknowledge of God. It was God who foreknew Judas would be sitting on his left. It was God who foreknew that John would be seated at his right. It was God who foreknew what questions John would ask and then what Peter would then ask to John. 
It was God who foreknew the exact time Satan would enter in and possess Judas. Every detail of this unfolding drama is all the threads in, in, in this great tapestry of God's providence just perfectly put into place so that this whole scene would unfold without anyone detecting it was Judas. How brilliant are the ways of God. <laughs> How stunningly with absolute genius intelligence has God set his plan and his purpose and can even keep it hidden from those who are the very closest to the Lord. And it really speaks to how we need to walk by faith and, and not by sight. To trust the Lord in, in all your heart and lean not on our own understanding. They could have never figured all this out. This was the divine sovereign plan of God the Father finished to perfection by God the Son. Well, in verse 30, it says, So after receiving the morsel of bread, after Judas had received the bread, he, Judas, immediately went out, <laughs> just as Jesus commanded him. Judas went out, yes, meaning he has left the upper room. And then John adds these four words I want you to see, and these are... The four words, which is the last point, and it was night. And it was night. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Not only had darkness descended over Jerusalem, Jesus said, I'll be with you for just a little while longer. Come while the light is still with you. Darkness had descended over Judas's heart. He was now completely under the sway of the power of darkness. And the next time Judas appears in the gospel, he is leading those who want Jesus dead. In John's gospel, John uses, let's call it poetic imagery. It's pregnated with meaning in ways that are a bit different than, than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And if these last words were written in, in one of those Gospels, it would probably mean a, a simple time reference. But for John to write, and it was night, it pictures the darkness of sin that Jesus has come to expose. And Jesus talks about this nonstop through the Gospel of John. Maybe no more powerfully than in John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus in this powerful third chapter said, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. He's not talking about physical darkness. He's ta uh, not talking uh, about uh, moral darkness. He's talking about, um, or he's talking about moral darkness. He's talking about spiritual darkness. And it says, and men love the darkness rather than the light. So he's not talking about ambient light or, or sunlight. No, he's talking about truth and grace and holiness and salvation. He is the light, the light of the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Verse 19, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light. Oh, you bet there's a lot of meaning here. <laughs> you bet. And it was night. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And, and John adds, and it was night. Judas is leaving the light. He's leaving the light. He's leaving the truth. He is leaving mercy. He is leaving grace. He is leaving forgiveness. He is leaving salvation. He is going out into the darkness of sin, never to return to the light. It was night outside. Now it's night inside of Judas. 
He has now crossed the line of no return. And, and from this point on, he is a man who has sold his soul to the devil who is now living inside of him. In fact, now that he has been exposed as the betrayer, he knew that he must ask quickly before possibly his entire plot collapsed. He evidently went straight from the upper room to the Sanhedrin where, where he reported where Jesus would be away from the crowd to the authorities that later that night Jesus would in fact be in the Garden of Gethsemane where he often visited with the disciples where he would go to pray to the Father. There they would find Jesus. Judas would be the one to lead the band of soldiers to the exact location to where Jesus was. And, and Judas would identify Jesus by walking up to him and betraying him with a kiss. Kiss of betrayal, a kiss of death. How darkened must the heart of Judas be? And after that, Judas was so filled with guilt and hate for what he had done, he went off that night and hung himself. Acts 1 verse 25 tells us Judas turned aside and by transgression fell and went to his own place. These verses in John 13 are first and foremost a warning shot to those who, who hang around Jesus just long enough to deceive themselves into thinking that they are saved. How much of the United States walks around today thinking they are saved by their good works or that they're good people or, oh, sure, I believe in God. And these verses, it's like a, a, a bright flare shot up into <laughs> the dark night sky as a warning for everyone who claims the name of Christ. Matthew 7, 22 says, Many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, many. Matthew 7 is a terrifying verse. It is perhaps the most tragic verse in all the Bible as it shows us there are people who are going to be thinking that they are going to heaven, but they are not. One of the things that always deeply troubled me as a minister of the gospel are those who we may meet along the way. I have met more than I want to say already in a few years. But those who we meet along the way, maybe you attended their baptism. Maybe you have sat next to them even here at this church. Maybe that they have sung the, the songs with you. Maybe you have fellowshiped with them. Maybe you had felt you had witnessed good fruit coming from their life. They attended studies. They took the communion. And then one day they were gone. And, and not just from church. No, they're no longer interested in the things of God as they once were. Oh, yes, maybe they say they still believe but I have also heard I am just not as into it as I was before. How does this happen? Can someone like Judas be saved one day and then just fall away another? Matthew 13 covers this topic in great detail in the, in the parable of the sower. But I want to share with you first um, just a verse, and we're just about finished here. First John 2.19. As John here, he, he's reassuring the church who's dealing with the endless barrage of false teachers, antichrists, coming through, and that those people who were coming in, then, then people were leaving the fellowship to go with them. And here we find out that they were never truly of the faith. It says... They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they 
went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. So, so John states, if the false teachers and, and their followers had truly possessed eternal life, they would have remained where the truth was being preached. But since they were not really of us, they went out just as Judas went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Jesus says in Matthew 13 of the, of the seed that was sown on rocky soil, verse 20, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. But the example that might suit Judas the best is the seed sown against amongst the thorns. Jesus says in verse 22, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Several lessons emerge from the tragic story of Judas's betrayal. We have two minutes left. First, Judas is history's greatest example of lost opportunity and wasted privilege. He heard Jesus' teaching day after day. He witnessed firsthand the, the greatest of miracles performed by the Lord Jesus Christ that proved that he was the fulfillment of the scriptures of the Messiah and that he was without a doubt the son of God. Second, Judas is the foremost illustration of the danger of loving money. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Money meant more to Judas than eternal salvation. Third, Judas typifies the vileness of spiritual betrayal. Listen, in every age, there have been Judases who profess to follow Jesus but have turned against him or turned against the fellowship. Again, Judas's life is a reminder of self-evaluation. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Fourth, Judas was living proof of Christ's incredible patience and mercy and kindness. That even though Jesus knew from the very beginning what Jesus would do, he loved them to the point that even the Lord's closest disciples had no idea it was Judas. And when Judas led the mob uh, to arrest Christ and, and Judas betrayed the Lord with a kiss, Jesus said, friend, do what you came to do. What a, a long-suffering Savior. Fifth, the example of Judas shows that the devil will always be at work amongst God's people. Jesus illustrated that truth in the parable of the wheat and the tares, also in Matthew 13. Just read that whole chapter through. Six, Judas proves the deadliness of hypocrisy. He was a fruitful, fruitless branch that would be cast, that was dried up and cast into the eternal lake of fire. And then finally, on an uplifting note, Judas demonstrated that there is nothing sinful man can do to thwart the plans of God. God is sovereign. And, and out of the seemingly tragedy of the cross came the triumph of redemption. Satan's apparent victory was in reality his ultimate defeat. God used Judas's treachery 
for his own glory. As for you, Judas, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What and when Judas sold Jesus to his enemies for, he was in fact selling his own soul to the devil. In the words of one poet, still as of old, men by themselves are priced. For 30 pieces, Judas sold himself, not Christ. God is sovereign. He wins out in the end. Whose side are you on? And is your stake in that ground? What, what would uh, Christy always say? Know that you know that you know. You're, yeah, we better know. Right? Dig in, plant in. Th th this, this kind of uh, situation should not shake the ground that we're on. We should be, in fact, on a firm foundation. Okay? But whose side are you on? Are you on God's side? I pray that you are. If you need the prayers of the church, we'd be happy to pray with you down front here. And I just ask the leaders come front as we stand and sing the song of invitation. What is it today? Graves into gardens. There we go.